Where do we come from? How did it all start? How much of what we're told in school about our ancient history is trustworthy? And how much is pure guessing? And how much do we honestly want to find out ourselves? This is Mind the Shift. I am Anders Bolling. My guest today has dedicated most of his life to searching for the truth about who we humans are. It's an honor and a pleasure to meet you, Andrew Collins. Welcome. Anders, hi. It's my pleasure to be here. Now, you've written at least a dozen books, or maybe is it 15, or how many is it? I've lost count. It's, it's about... I've lost count. Yeah. That, well, they, they all challenge the, uh, you know, the, um, the way we perceive our past. And they also touch on the relationships between our, our minds and significant structures, relics, artifacts, and, and pieces of art, uh, as well as um, the significance of the cosmos in our history, which is really fascinating. And it's, it's something that not most mainstream archaeologists and historians delve into really not not in that fashion anyway so how did this all start i mean how did this deep private investigation of yours into the origins of humankind begin what was your drive from the start I, it was certainly a passion for the mysteries of life um you know going back to school um when i was you know maybe eight or ten uh, i was interested in things like ghosts ufos astral projection what dreams meant. I was getting books out of the library by, you know, Sigmund Freud uh, on dream analysis and stuff like this, books that I couldn't really even understand to try and get answers to, you know, who we are, where we come from and what are we doing here? Um, so that sort of was my sort of uh, childhood introduction to it. Um, but then as the years went by, uh, I eventually started writing about a number of mysteries, most of them local to where I lived in Southeast England at the time. And I started producing books um, that sold on, you know, to a, a local market. Um, but those mysteries started to become uh, more national, if you like, as in to do with the whole of Britain and then more international as to do with the whole globe. Uh, and obviously I started focusing in on certain areas of interest um, particularly ancient Egypt, where I've written various books that are very specifically related to, um, you know, the dynastic history of the place, but also um, the origins of civilization. Um, and since the mid-1990s, I've been focusing in on the area of southeast Turkey as the cradle of civilization, uh, the place where it all began uh, after the last ice age, um, I'm basically saying that something big must have occurred in this area, uh, a meeting between the indigenous peoples there and somebody else that clearly came in, some kind of uh, elite group, maybe of shamans or priests or something that came in and kickstarted a lot of activities to do with art and technology uh, and cosmology that seemed to change everything and that was remembered in myth and legend are stories like the Watchers and the Nephilim of the Book of Enoch or the Anunnaki of the Sumerian and Babylonian tradition or even the immortals of Iranian myth and legend. All of these overlap and interlinked with each other. 
and all of them point to the same area as the foundation point of of you know what we'd call civilization but you know the, the, the genesis point of human activity uh, and I said that something must have happened there now I wrote all this in a book called From the Ashes of Angels that was published in 1996. Um, and you wrote that before the discovery of this very... Yeah, yeah. and, and the, the, what was so interesting about it is that as I was writing the words to this book, what I didn't realise was that the first spades were going into the ground at Quebecli Tepe in the very area that I said that you would find something. Um, and... Gebekli Tepe didn't really come onto the map as far as, you know, the, the mass media is concerned until the year 2000, which is when I found out about it. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I was already highlighting in my books that particular culture, the so-called pre-pottery Neolithic culture um, of the region of, of Anatolia and the Near East. But now we had this smoking gun that showed us that something big had gone on there right at the tail end of the last ice age at the tail end of this, this mini ice age that had, you know, been tagged on to the end of the big ice age, which we call the Younger Dryas. Yeah. Um, and what I'd suggested is that the Younger Dryas was involved with some kind of cataclysm, something, you know, that involved an object coming out of the sky and devastating parts of the Northern Hemisphere uh, and leaving as a legacy some kind of memory of this event that may well have triggered a lot of uh, sudden spurts of, of, of human activity, mm. not just in the area of um, southeast Anatolia, you know, where Gebekli Tepe is placed, but in other parts of the world uh, and in myths of legends, of course. I mean, there are thousands of, of myths and legends around the world that talk about some kind of catastrophe that reflected both a element coming from the sky, fire falling out of the sky, but also obviously a humongous flood that, you know, covered large areas, destroyed people and left alive only a few survivors. I mean, obviously, yeah. most obvious one being that of Noah and the great mm -hmm. flood of the Bible. Uh, but of course, is this is known just to one of, of hundreds of similar stories around the world. So that, that was it, really. And once Gobekli Tepe was on the map, then... That became my priority from that point onwards. I was lucky enough to visit it in 2004. And this was just after the publication of my book, From the Ashes of Angels, in Turkey. Um, okay. That came out in 2002, and I was invited to a, a big festival in Diyarbakir, which is the administrative, administrative centre of uh, southeast uh, Turkey today. And whilst I was there, you know, I, I wasn't really sort of getting paid much for it. So I said, well, look, you know, uh, can I can you, you know, allow me to see some of these sites that I'm, I'm going to be talking about? Yeah, because I've never been to them. And they said, yeah, sure. You know, we'll give you a, a car, a driver and a translator for a week. And, and, you know, I said, thank you very much. And obviously I was able to visit Gebekli Tepe. Um, and various other pre-pottery Neolithic sites, you know, like Chayunu, which is near Diyarbakar, uh, Karahantepe, which is now big in the news today. There's excavations going on. So all of these sites I visited in 2004, and uh, the consequences of all of that was a book that came out in 2006 called The Cygnus Mystery. Um, 
and obviously as to why it's a mystery and why it's something to do with sickness, we may or may not come on to later on in the show. Yeah, yeah. Okay, excellent. Uh, you're talking about Gobekli Tepe now, and just for the listeners to understand a little bit more what this is, they might not be aware of this uh, very significant site. We just uh, uh, explain a little bit more closely what it is. It's a, it's a site that was ex- discovered by the German archaeologist, um, Kla- what's his name now, Klaus Schmidt? in 1994 and it's in southern turkey it's close to the border with uh, iraq i think or syria maybe syria in that in that area and it's uh, it's a large site and the, and the most significant thing is that these um, megalithic structures that are found there are very very much older than you might expect from what we have been told so far yeah. about the history of humankind and i've just read your magnificent book about about it uh, gobekli tepe the genesis of the gods uh, this magnificent book is really very, very. It's a, it's a it's a fantastic book. It's both both very personal and also peppered with knowledge and facts. So it's very special. And I just read it, and um, it's uh, you can, you understand, of course, that this is a place of enormous significance, and and the discovery has also big implications for the story of our past. So if you just in a few sentences or minutes can explain what is it that makes Gobekli Tepe so so important? Well firstly the age. Um, I mean the carbon-14 dating of the various stone enclosures that are these like stone circles but the stones are shaped like the capital T basically they've got these T-shaped terminations and on most of them they have um, carvings, you know, like in relief of animals of all descriptions, you know, everything from boars to bulls to snakes to insects to different types of birds. Um, but many of these stones are also anthropomorphic in, in the sense that it's very clear that the, the T-shaped termination actually represents the head of an individual. Um, and you have um, the, 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 the appearance actually on the, the base of the stones, the stems of the stones, of what appears to be clothes and arms and hands that are, have been deliberately carved to emphasise the fact that these are, are anthropomorphic. Um, but they never have faces. It's, it's like the faces were deliberately left out so that when you look at them, quite clearly you, you can conjure up any face that you want. And this mm. is uh, led to the suggestion that maybe these T-shaped pillars, of which there are hundreds there, um, represent maybe the first gods um, or celestial beings um, or divine ancestors, great ancestors of the past, which I think I, I think all of these are in some way correct. I don't think there's any one answer and nobody has the exact answer at this point mm. in time. But, I mean, the thing that got me when I first looked at Gebekli Tepe and I looked at all the carvings and having already written extensively about Sumerian civilization, Egyptian civilization, was just how alien, and I don't mean from the stars, but I mean just how alien the carvings looked and so out of place to Southwest Asia. I mean, they looked like nothing that came after them. Um, and if I had to... And it's, what, what's a, the time frame here? It's the carbon... 14 dating has dated this site. Yeah, I mean, the, basically so the, the site was, was occupied now. and used between 9500 BC 
and 8,000 BC. So that's a period of around 1,500 years. And, um, you know, it was in full operation. I mean, but what's so interesting is that these huge stone enclosures, which, you know, you could compare, let's say, with, with Stonehenge, uh, although Stonehenge with beautiful carvings and these T-shaped capitals, is that the most sophisticated, the largest and most sophisticated of the enclosures are the oldest ones. And as the years went by, these enclosures got smaller and smaller and less and less sophisticated until eventually they went from being, you know, let's say 30 metres across down to about three metres across. Mm. And they look like, you know, the size of your, of, of your bathroom or something. I mean, it was, it's bizarre the way that everything changed, but you would expect the sophistication to be going in the opposite direction, that you would get the simplest enclosures to start with and the, the, the sophistication would come afterwards, but that's not the case at Quebec. It seems Tepe. as if people were forgetting the knowledge. They were forgetting, but also they were getting to the point where they didn't need to do what they were doing anymore. And you might say, well, why would that be? Well, the answer is clear that the people that created Gebekli Tepe still had a very strong memory of this cataclysm, which is now pretty well established to have occurred initially around 10,800 BC and to involve a fragmentation of a comet uh, that came into the atmosphere and peppered the Northern Hemisphere, creating, creating huge devastation, possibly uh, destroying up to 75% of the population in North America alone, um, but also reaching very close to Gebekli Tepe itself. There is a site on the Euphrates called uh, Abu Horoya. Uh, it's in modern-day Syria, although today it's, it's beneath the waters of a, of, of a dam, a reservoir of a dam. Um, and the archaeologists there discovered uh, not only artefacts going back uh, 11, 10, sorry, 11 to 12,000 years and more. But they also found a layer of uh, melted glass and other types of, of what they call scoric um, debris, which could only have been created by something of extreme high temperature. And we're talking, you know, 2,500 degrees centigrade. Mm -hmm. um, now, the only thing that can cause this on Earth is lightning. Um, but if it's lightning, it, it's a very small area, but this was over an extensive area and yeah. strongly has suggested um, to climatologists, to geologists and, and many other types of disciplines that we are dealing with uh, some kind of um, obviously a comet impact, but some kind of airborne uh, blast of, of fire, uh, which is quite characteristic of what would happen with an incoming uh, fragment of a comet. And this was found all over the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, also, there is a layer of thick black ash that's been found in various continents around the world that all, that all dates to about 10,800 BC. Yeah. Um, in Europe, it's called the, the Usilu horizon. Uh, in America, it's called the Black Mat. Um, and it contains uh, cosmic debris, debris of uh, catastrophe, and it's very similar around the world, and it tells us that this catastrophe almost certainly did occur. 
And um, the fact but, that it's uh, the reason it's black is because there were large fires all across the yeah Hemisphere. yeah, but it's not simply yeah. the fires at the location. It's about the fires creating ash and debris that rises yeah. up into the air uh, and remains in the the, the lower atmosphere uh, until, of course, you know, clouds form and then it falls back down uh, with rain generally. Uh, which would be very toxic, very acid-like rain that would then not just create this um, this layer, but also stain very heavily the soil around it, which is exactly what's being found. I mean, I've I've viewed this um, this layer in um, where was it Belgium, just over the border from Holland, uh, yeah, with the discoverer uh, a few years ago, and it is bizarre because you know I saw it within these, these sandy layers, you know, layers which had been laid down at the end of the last ice age. And if you pick it out, it, it's almost like exactly the same as what you would get if you looked beneath a, a, a bonfire in your back garden. You know, it's that same oily blackness. It's, you know, it's very strange to feel that and to know that it's uh, around, um, what, 12,800 years old, and yet it's still yes. exactly the same as it was then. Um, and that brings to life just how terrible this event must have been mm -hmm. uh, across the Northern Hemisphere. But and it is established I mean, that the climate changed during this time, isn't it? Yes. Well, it has. I mean, you know, you've only got to look at the ice cores in, uh, in the Arctic and uh, Antarctic to be able to see, you know, big changes in the chemicals going on at this time, which tells us that there were, there were huge conflagrations going on in the world, you know, a lot of fires, basically. Now, the sceptics would say, well, these are just regional fires that were going on here and there, you know, or at best, maybe some volcanoes that were that were going up at the time. But I'm afraid to say that the evidence of, you know, the, 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 the glass, the melted glass, for instance, which is everywhere. I mean, it, it's, it's all over the different continents. Mm -hmm. uh, would tend to suggest that we are dealing with something that totally devastated the Northern Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and so you, these people at Gobekli Tepe, they come out of this and, you know, immediately this mini ice age, which was almost certainly triggered by this event and lasted 1,200 years, so that brings us to 9,600 BC, that's when Gobekli Tepe was built. So it was built directly after the end of this mm -hmm. mini ice age. Mm -hmm. And... You know, here you have people creating these incredible Stonehenge-like monuments at this time. And you have to ask yourself, what was going on here? Well, firstly, I identify in the book that you've read, Gobekli Tepe, Genesis of the Gods, the fact that there is very clear comet imagery uh, on various of the stones, particularly the most yeah, important. Yeah, yeah, that's very salient when you Biggest when and, and most important ones. Um, and this alerted me to the fact that the people that were here very clearly were trying to um, appease or stop any further cataclysms taking place. And to do this, they were employing the services of shaman or shamans. And these shamans would enter into uh, what we'd call a death trance, you know, in other words, a very heavy altered state of consciousness and believe that they were being projected uh, you know, through certain stones within these monuments towards the sky world. You know, in other words, somewhere that was accessed 
via the Milky Way, via the stars. Um, and here they would encounter the supernatural creatures that were thought to bring about these cataclysms. Now, what type of supernatural creatures? Well, we're talking about essentially canines, essentially large canines, dogs, wolves, and foxes. And obviously in, in North America, for instance, it would be coyotes, for instance. Mm -hmm. And all of these are what's known as tricksters. And these tricksters are what can bring about catastrophe. They can bring about the end of the world. They can bring about the end of time. And they have to be appeased. Um, they have to be made offerings. And the, when a comet appears in a sky, and, and strangely enough, in some traditions, this even continues to this day, it is seen as the tail of one of these, these canines. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And that these tails of the comet are the tails of these supernatural creatures that enter into our space and have to be dealt with. And I mean, I, I put an account in the book um, from the Maya lands of, of Mexico from the 17th century of a, uh, a village where a comet appeared in the sky, which was almost certainly Halley's comet, by the yeah. way. Um, and the, the priests came out dressed in um, animal robes and garbs, particularly with the tails of foxes. Um, and these, these quite clearly were the, the animistic forms that were associated with the, the intelligence that was connected with the supernatural you know, beings that, that were thought to bring about catastrophe. And that by doing rituals, that by making offerings, they could stave off the end of the world until the next time. Uh, and I think that these ideas have been going on ever since the end of the last ice age in different parts of the world. And I think that the reason why the most sophisticated um, uh, enclosures were constructed at the beginning is because this is when there was the most urgency about dealing with this problem. And this mm. is why you have the comet um, symbols and imagery on the stones. And this gradually disappears Mm -hmm. uh, across the, um, the, the centuries until right at the end of Gebekli Tepe, as I say, they were only creating these tiny, tiny um, enclosures yeah. that were very simple. Yes, they were still doing so, the T-shaped pillars, but they were tiny now. I mean, they were now no more than, you know, around two metres in, in height. So People felt that they had been able to appease They'd done it, creatures. yeah. But, uh, but the thing is that the world was changing because... About 8,500 BC, there was the introduction of agriculture and animal husbandry uh, and a lot of other uh, changes in technology that were beginning to occur. So that the interests began to turn away from dealing with things in the sky world to ensuring that the sun appeared each day and obviously you know, at the time of the winter solstice, for instance, that, that it would start, the days would start growing longer, et cetera, et cetera, because this now became more important to them uh, because of their, um, their, their settled lifestyle. It was now important to them to, uh, to, to, to basically revere and venerate the sun. I mean, literally. And for this reason, we see the changes in the orientation of the enclosures at Gebekli Tepe suddenly changing from what are quite clearly picking out certain stars 
to picking out where the sun either rises or sets on the horizon at the time of the solstices and the equinoxes. Mm. And I think that's really important to, to stress that, you know, that, that, the, that the emphasis of the orientation of these enclosures suddenly changed. Okay. Uh, and this reflects what was going on in the world at, at the time. And that's what we call the Neolithic Revolution yeah. um, and the beginning of agriculture. Yeah. But the earliest enclosures at Göbekli Tepe are really advanced. I mean, for the time, they, they, how could something that advanced have been created more than 5,000 years before we have been told that civilization was even uh, beginning in Sumeria and Egypt and what, whatever we are told in school? Well, the answer to that is that quite clearly a lot of these technologies already existed um, and must have been carried through the final part of the, the Ice Age. Um, although clearly they weren't there in southeast Anatolia, uh, modern day Turkey, they must have come from somewhere else. Now, there are certain influences coming up from the area of the Levant uh, and the culture that was very dominant there. Um, but you know, it seems as if that something new was happening in southeast uh, Turkey. And my best guess, and this was also the suggestion of Klaus Schmidt, the discoverer of Gebekli Tepe and some of his colleagues, is that you're looking at peoples coming down from the area of the Russian steppes and north of the Black Sea over or around the Caucasus Mountains um, and then entering Anatolia from the north um, and settling there, probably even before the time of Gebekli Tepe, maybe I'm going to say around 10,000 BC, maybe 10,500 BC. So at the time when this mini ice age was still taking place, and quite clearly people were escaping it in a way by moving south and trying to find warmer climes. Mm. Um, and that's exactly what they did. So they end up in Anatolia. And I think what happened is that you had this very smart, clever elite coming into Southeast Anatolia and there were the local people there and somehow they convinced the local people that they had the answer of how to make all this stop, how to ensure that these cataclysms never occurred again and that this involved the creation of these huge enclosures. The earliest stone enclosures of, the, of this type anywhere in the world certainly that we you know can officially say go back to that age i mean obviously there's other possible candidates but um but gobekli tepe is the oldest established temple complex in the world hmm. well th these are called th these this group that you're referring to are called the squiderians if i remember yeah yeah i, I mean squiderians is uh what we call a techno complex i mean it, it, and that describes the style of manufacture of their stone tools, okay. uh, which is, you know, which is important because they 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 develop certain styles which um, become almost like signatures of of their culture uh, and where exactly they manage to um, end up in in Europe. I mean, for instance, uh, the Swedians were as far west as the Carf Carpathians and in Poland, but they were also as far east as the Ural Mountains, um, you know, which obviously border 
uh, Asia, and in particular, obviously, um, Western Siberia beyond it, and as far south as the Caucasus Mountains. And if you look at a lot of the stone tools that have been found at Gebekli Tepe, they very closely match those of the Swiderians. And, and I mean, you can't say that the Swiderians were a particular, you know, population or what they looked like or anything like that, uh, because you're dealing with, you know, a style of technology more than an actual culture. Mm. But it does give us a clue of who might have been turning up at Gebekli Tepe uh, around 9,600 BC. And it was incoming peoples from the Russian steppes who already had a huge amount of technology, which can be seen from the areas of, let's say, the Ural Mountains, which is where the Swiderians were supposed to have begun their own journey um, as a, a, a carrier culture, carrying those ideas, not just in the creation of stone tools, but the spread of art, the spread of certain technologies mm. um, and obviously their arrival in places like Anatolia, you can see it there. You can see the same comparison with the art style, with the stone tools and everything at Gebekli Tepe with what was going on almost contemporary uh, at sites in the Ural Mountains. Okay. Now, those Ural Mountain sites were themselves a product of uh, migrations from even further east in Siberia and possibly even in Mongolia, in, in Inner Asia. Um, and you, you've got this, this movement of, of people and ideas gradually going westwards at a much earlier date, you know, because we've got the Neolithic Revolution occurring around, let's say, eight to 9,000 BC. But this was just the latest phase. Much earlier, you had something else going on in the area of Siberia, around 30 to 40,000 years, that was gradually moving uh, like waves of activity westwards into Europe, southwestwards into uh, Southwest Asia. Talking about the Denisovans? Yes, yes, Siberia, but not just but... the Denisovans, that, you know, obviously we're talking about hybrid peoples that would have been Denito uh, Denisovans, um, Neanderthal, and early modern humans. But also, this wasn't just westwards. I mean, quite clearly what was going on in Siberia was, was also going eastwards as well, into China, into um, you know, the sort of uh, eastern Siberia, um, the areas of um, the, the Beringia, you know, the, the land bridge, and almost certainly going into the Americas. It was going into Southeast Asia. It was spreading out, and of course, into South Asia, into India and Pakistan, um, you know, those areas as well. So, you know, the, this is, if you want to look for the origins of it all, yes, I suspect that you've got to be looking in the area of Siberia. Now, um, what was going on in Siberia then? Well, as you've already alluded to, um, there were a people there called the Denisovans. That is the correct pronunciation, by the way. Okay, um, sorry. <laughs> and, no, no, honestly, it's like tomato, tomato, I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, okay. it, it, but it's, it, it originally was Denisovan. Um, and the Denisovans, we didn't even know existed until the year 2010, when, um, when human remains that were found at this place called the Denisova Cave uh, in Siberia, in the Altai Mountains, uh, were analysed and they were expected to be 
those of modern humans. They dated to about 45,000 years ago, some even earlier. Uh, but when the results came in, the genome was analysed. Um, it was found that we were dealing with a type of, of, of human that we'd never come across before. Mm-hmm. Um, and they started to call them Denisovans. But what they found is that certain of the genes that were present in the Denisovan genome were found in populations all over the world, um, which clearly showed that the Denisovans had interbred with the earliest ancestors of our own, of of our own, you know, anatomic modern humans. Um, And so these these people were very, very important to the development of of human technology, to human um, cosmology, to human um, migrations uh, in R as well, obviously, and this, this, yeah. So suddenly, that there was there was somebody there was something else going on here we didn't know anything about. And from 2010 right the way through to today, what's gradually been going on is that people are beginning to become aware that a lot of our early um, developments in art and technology were not our own; that we inherited them, and were probably taught them by our Denisovan and also Neanderthal ancestors, um, because obviously, you know, a large percentage of, of the populations of the Eurasian continent, for instance, have either Neanderthal DNA, anything up to two to three percent, or on the east side of the Eurasian yeah. continent, they have uh, Denisovan uh, DNA, anything up to five to six percent. Okay. You know, and obviously there's, there's certain crossovers with, with, with certain populations. But the importance about the Denisovans is what has been discovered at their primary site, which is the Denisova cave. Uh, I mean, for instance, you know, let your viewers look up the Denisovan bracelet, for instance. Google that in and you'll see this incredible bangle that was worn on the arm of, of, of an individual, they think probably a, a lady, um, and it's got a hole pierced through it where you would have had like a cord and something else, maybe a disc of stone mm. hanging from that. And the, the actual drilled hole is so sophisticated mm. that it looks as if it was done by a modern day drill. You know, in other words, very fast. And of course, mm. what this doesn't mean is that they had electric drills. It's nothing to do with that. But somehow they worked out how to pierce holes in rock at a very fast rate. So that just for the word go shows how sophisticated they were, but that's just the beginning. Yeah, I read about that. I I recognize the- the Yeah, I mean, this is just the beginning of their technology. I mean, Mm. you know, they created the earliest bone needles in the world, uh, which obviously they used to create tailored clothing. Um, They created the earliest musical instrument in the form of a a whistle or a flute. They don't know why it's broken. uh, That was found in the Denisova layer um, of this, the Denisovan layer of this cave. Um, They they created a a beautiful statue of a a mountain or a Khazra cave lion that has markings on it that would suggest the an understanding of the cycles of the sun and the moon. Uh, I've talked about this before, and I'll be talking about again in a new book coming out, um, that tends to suggest that the minds of the Denisovans were very 
meticulous relating to cycles and numbers and intricacies, which I don't think a lot of anatomical modern humans had at the same time. Mm. And what happened, of course, is that our modern human ancestors interbred with these um, Denisovans. We don't know how, just in the same way that we must have interbred with the, the, the Neanderthals. And the hybrid descendants of these inherited this legacy, and they were the ones that started to carry it into different parts of the Eurasian continent, but also, of course, into the Americas as well. Over to America as well. Yeah. So it all started in Siberia. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm, I'm, a bit, I'm, a bit, I'm a bit confused, though, when it comes to the, uh, the time frame here and uh, the Ice Age, because this must have gone on during the latest Ice Age, as yeah. far as I understand. Absolutely. And I mean, yeah, Siberia I mean, was covered with ice, wasn't it? For Yes, it was. And the, the interesting thing is that... Um, that uh, one of the genes, uh, it may even be two, but one of, one of the genes of the, um, the Denisovans that was found in the, uh, the Inuit peoples of Greenland uh, is one about bulking up. In fact, it's mm -hmm. two genes, it's two specific genes, um, about bulking up so that you can withstand extremely cold environments. And what becomes clear is that the, the peoples of Greenland, um, you know, Uh, the, you know, the Inuits that clearly come over probably from the American continent from Canada um, mm -hmm. had inherited this gene from their own ancestors who must have interbred with Denisovans and yeah. this enables them even to this day to live in extremely cold environments and this was developed by the Denisovans over probably tens if not hundreds of thousands of years Um, and we now know, for instance, that the Denisovans uh, had been around the area of Siberia and also Tibet. This is the important thing, Tibet. We now know they were in Tibet for at least 200, maybe even 300,000 years. Um, and I mean, and the other important thing is that the, the technology that eventually ends up being carried by the Swiderian peoples Uh, into uh, Anatolia and southeast Turkey was developed, it would now seem, by the last of the Denisovans um, and handed to their hybrid descendants, probably in the area of Mongolia. This is what the latest archaeological evidence is showing, uh, probably around 30 to 35,000 years ago. And that once we had been given this particular type of stone tool technology, We carried it, we went with it and used it throughout the whole of the so-called Upper Paleolithic period from about 45,000 years ago, right the way through to the Neolithic. And it's found there at Gebekli Tepe. And it's almost like a paper trail, a paper trail that begins in time around 30 to 35,000 years ago and ends, if you like, at Gebekli Tepe around 11,500 years ago. So in other words, the sophistication, the technology and the art, the, which comes from the mindset of the people that created Gebekli Tepe comes originally, I would say, and I would put my money on this, from the mm -hmm. area of Siberia, Mongolia, and that it came westwards via the Ural Mountains into Europe and Southwest Asia. Okay, fascinating. 
Well, we'll see if you you get your money back then. Uh, um, this, well, I mean, more, look, more discoveries um, are there made. Is, there's a new book coming out by a professor of history at Oxford by the name of um, is it? Um, God, I'll have to look it up. Hi, um, uh, uh, coming out on March the 25th. That's just a few days time, and it's essentially saying exactly what I've just been telling you, okay. um, and. I say this because I have been talking about this in, in my books for the last uh, five, or f five or so years. Um, and, you know, and eventually the ideas of mavericks like myself and my background is journalism. Uh, I'm, I have no qualifications whatsoever. I left school at 16. Um, um, you know, eventually the academics and the scholars come around to your way of thinking often than not. Uh, yeah, and you never get any credit for it, not one word of credit, but that's life, I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, it's always the mavericks who push the envelope. So they, they do, and, and the academics and the scholars will read your books, but they'll never admit to it, ever. Yeah. Um, they can't because, you know, their, their positions, um, their seats in universities, um, you know, the grants that they get would, would, would all just disappear evaporate away and so i understand it uh and i don't care because you know if i'm proved right eventually i can just highlight that and say well look if you want to read where it was originally said mm -hmm. here are my books and here is the books of other people other contemporaries of me like graham hancock you know who have also said similar uh, things yes, the i was gonna mention him here actually in one of my questions but let's go back to Gobekli Tepe and and the Swiderians or whoever the whatever we should call that group of people who came down there with this knowledge and this technique technology who yeah. helped these people that were there in southern yeah. eastern yeah Anatolia build these megalithic structures why why hadn't they built these megalithic structures before in other areas where they were living before why did they do th this just when they arrived there, what what, what happened? I mean, why, it's, well, it's bit, to, to me, it's a bit difficult to understand why this all of a sudden just became these magnificent uh, builders of of megalithic structures. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. Um, some of the legends relating to the idea of a conflagration, you know, fire falling from the sky. Uh, coupled with a flood, all have a similar ending. And that ending goes that there are only a couple of survivors, uh, maybe one family that were either in a, um, you know, that, that were protected in a cave on a mountain or on a boat or something, you know, you know the way that it goes. And it said that when they come out, the first thing they do is build an altar to give thanks to the, their God that they are still alive and that, that this will never happen again. Yeah. That is an idealistic view of the creation of places like Gebekli Tepe. These structures were built out of a necessity to ensure that this type of what um, has been described as catastrophobia, you know, the fear of, the, you know, of, of a catastrophe taking place, will never happen again. And that, and you're going to do whatever it takes. And if, if these weird priests or shamans come up to you and say, look, you know, we know how to sort this out, but to do it, we're going to have to create these, these monuments where we, where, which act as 
is almost like stargates, if you like, between this world and the next. You know, this will ensure that we can get and deal with the supernatural creatures that, that, that cause these problems in the world. We can do it instantly, but you've got to help us. You know, talking to the local people of Anatolia, you can help us. You, you, you can do this. Are you up for this? Yeah, let's do it. And that's how these enclosures were created, because it's quite clear that there was a hierarchy involved. Um, you know, there must have been many settlements involved in the construction of Gebekli Tepe, covering a vast area around it. And these occupational mounds, many of them have yet to be even investigated. Yeah. And this is where the people live. Nobody lived at Gebekli Tepe. No evidence has ever been found. This is a ritual ceremonial site a place where you would do things, basically mm. do things uh, of a magical level, on a magical nature, uh, involving the entering of altered states of consciousness and projecting yourself outwards into the sky world, into the cosmological realms. Yeah. And, I mean, we talked about my book, The Cygnus Mystery. Well, one of the reasons why it's called The Cygnus Mystery is that after very careful analysis, um, I concluded that the orientations of the axis of the oldest and largest of the enclosures at Gebekli Tepe all pointed towards the north-northwest, um, not the south-southeast, but the north-northwest, and that they focused on the, the descent of a particular star in the constellation of Cygnus. Now, Cygnus mm, means this, this one. Yeah, but that particular constellation is also known in Christian tradition as the Northern Cross. Um, and it's very prominently placed on the Milky Way, where the Milky Way splits in two in the north. And this split into two separate arms of the Milky Way is known as the Dark Rift or the Great Rift. And it has been seen by cultures all the way across the Northern Hemisphere as the point of entry into the sky world. Um, you know, it's almost like a road that, that, that takes you up and allows you that entrance so that if you could synchronize that entrance with the horizon um, and then project yourself um, and synchronize your enclosure with that, that would allow you that access. And there is a particular stone at Gebekli Tepe uh, which is officially called Pillar 43, but it's unofficially known as the Vulture Stone. And its main image, as the name suggests, is this huge, great vulture. Uh, and there are various other figures around it, including a scorpion. And the best solution as to what's going on here is that this is a sky map, a sky map into the sky world. And that vulture represents the constellation of Cygnus. Um, which was seen as a vulture in the Near East, in Greece, and also in Armenia, which is which neighbours on to uh, Anatolia, uh, where it's still to this day uh, a major constellation. Uh, and so, what you've got here is quite literally a sky map that was probably used for teaching, you know, initiates of shamans. Like, you know, this is where we're going to go. This is the sky map. So when you go here, you've got to jump to there, and. This is what that, that stone was used for. Uh, I mean, obviously, some of my colleagues have got other ideas, but, you know, that, that, that's, that's up to them.
yeah, talking about colleagues, you're not the only uh, independent researcher that uh, out there that conveys this alternative story about our, our origins. We mentioned my, um, Graham Hancock, whom I think you know, and who wrote Very the foreword so. to this book, yes. And yes. it's also yeah. really, really interesting to listen to. Uh, and if we take, uh, and there's another person, I know, I know a little bit about a, f a few of you. <laughs> I think there are more out there who, is, who are doing this kind of work, but uh, another one is Michael Tellinger, who has also been on the, on the show actually. So if we take uh, Michael Tellinger, Graham Hancock and yourself, of these three writers, I would say that Tellinger is the most far out, if you <laughs> should put it that way, because he has, um, he has a conviction that the legendary Anunnaki from the Sumerian tradition and Babylonian tradition actually were extraterrestrial beings who arrived, contributed to the emergence of Homo sapiens. And then Hancock, of course, he doesn't put ETs into the, the, the equation, but he uh, thinks that advanced people, possibly from the legendary destroyed civilization of Atlantis, arrived to help build these megalithic structures all around the Middle East that we don't understand why they were built today. And you seem, among these three, you seem to be the most conservative. Would you agree? Uh, yes, yeah. I mean, obviously, both Michael and uh, Graham Hancock are, are friends. I've stayed in both of their houses. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, we have crossovers in our... Uh, our understanding of the past and obviously our differences, but that doesn't really matter because I think we're all adding to a huge pool of knowledge, yeah. uh, which is, um, you know, increasing every year. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I suppose I am the most conservative in a way. I mean, I mean, I don't look towards extraterrestrials. And I mean, we were talking about flesh and blood aliens as coming down here and, you know, teaching us, the, the technologies of how to build pyramids and whatever. I, I, I'm not really into that. Uh, I'm also not really into the idea that uh, survivors of Atlantis, um, you know, came ashore and, you know, taught the peoples of, of Egypt or Samaria or whatever, uh, how to build our, you know, build architecture, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, because this, the archeological evidence just does not pan out in my opinion. Uh, and also, if you're talking about Atlantis, you have to say, well, which Atlantis are you talking about? I mean, there are so many different theories uh, and even the top researchers in the business seem to chop and change their mind as to where Atlantis is. At some point, it's, it's in Antarctica. You know, the next it's in um, Indonesia and the next it's in, you well, know, that's um, Lemuria, yeah, I guess. I mean, you know, and I'm not, I'm not putting this down. I'm just saying that I yeah. think that I know there are lots the of Atlantis, the idea that everything comes from Atlantis is a weak idea um, because it has no solid foundation until we actually have a specific Atlantean civilization, then I think we need to look for alternatives and the mm -hmm. same as well about aliens. Now, I mean, aliens is something that I have written a lot about and, uh, uh, but not from the perspective that most people would think. I mean, to me, I believe that, Humanity, probably since the beginning, I mean, going back hundreds of thousands of years, has possibly been influenced um, by non-terrestrial intelligences who have affected us uh, mentally as opposed to physically. In other words, ideas could have created new inventions, uh, spurts mm -hmm. of, of uh, advances, uh, and that this has been going on 
possibly but not starships possibly. landing and, and entities in flesh and blood uh, walking, no, around, walking no, around. No, 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 no. I don't. I don't think that it needs any of that. I mean, look. At the end of the day, the the closest star is something like what four light years away. Let's say three or four. Uh, I mean, that's a huge distance to cover. And unless you have, you know, access to stargates and stuff like this, yes. um, you know, or portals, dimensional portals or whatever, which I'm not saying don't exist. I'm just saying that we need a lot more evidence to say that they do. Uh, for entities, beings from these other star systems to come down here and influence, influence us physically, what would be far more easier is for them to influence them influence us from a distance from their own planets in their own star systems and they can do that by a process called quantum entanglement uh, mm -hmm. quantum entanglement is the idea that particles um, essentially can split and become two separate particles but no matter how far away they get they still communicate without with each other instantaneously um, or at the same instant of time. I've got to be careful with, with my wording. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I've heard you talking about time, uh, that time doesn't exist and that we can access well, the future. I mean, look, I, I've, been in, I've been in discussions with one of the, the top uh, experts in the world on entanglement recently, and he's been yeah. trying to sort of put me right on a few things, and I, I agree <laughs> with some things, but not with okay. others. But... I still stick with the fact that we're dealing with an instant, instant transfer of information, uh, which, although we're dealing with just one particle, there are countless particles everywhere with, in everything that we, we deal with, whether it be in the first, second, third state of matter, solid, liquids or gas. But beyond that, even in the full state of matter, which is plasma, and plasma, I think, is the key to mm. understanding the nature of intelligences that have been affecting us for, you know, not just tens of thousands of years, but hundreds of thousands yes. of years. Uh, this is something that myself and Greg Little talk about in a new book that we've got coming out next oh. March, which I don't want to say too much about now because not even the title has been settled on yet. But, um, but you know, we'll be going into all of these, 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 yeah, looking for the origins. This is what we're trying yeah, to do. Fascinating. Here, so yeah, because when, yeah, that's, I, I'm I'm really happy that you're going going that in that direction. And yeah. because I mean, if we go very far back, we have been talking about the younger Dryas and uh, the later stages of the the latest Ice Age. But when you look into these things, you, you you kind of when I read your book, for instance, and and even if you go further back, you get the impression that a thousand years here or there doesn't really matter. And I I I, I realized that I came to think of the life of Jesus Christ as being pr practically in my yes. own time. <laughs> so, I mean, everything yeah. is relevant. Jesus Christ, geez, that's just 2,000 years ago. I mean, how many, is it 70 generations or something? So if we go way back, how did it all, how do you think it all began? Because, well, you say you don't think that there were any extraterrestrial beings in the flesh and blood walking around here, but in some way there might have been some kind of interference, some kind of, um, they have may have affected us in some way because there is something a bit strange, a bit odd about the sudden development, sudden evolution of of Homo sapiens or humankind or however you want to uh, frame it. Because um, there was something that happened 
maybe 200, 300 or 400,000 years ago, that's a bit difficult to explain really why we became this species with this much intelligence and this much uh, development of culture and this strange way of living on well, this planet without any, having any, any obvious yeah. uh, purpose, uh, yeah. which is very, very different from all other animals and all these apes, the other human apes, as they call them, that have, haven't changed in two million years. And, well, you see where, where I'm going with this. <laughs> I can, yeah. I mean, um, I mean, in the next book, most You're going to explain the, everything. <laughs> well, I, well, half of it, at least. Okay. Um, because we're going back and focusing on an era of around 400,000 years ago uh, in Israel, uh, a place called the Kezem Cave, uh, which is, you know, incredible discovery. It's been coming out of there uh, recently uh, to do with, you know, innovative inventions of humanity that all begin there for the first time. Um, but the important thing about this is that not only did these people who would seem to have been uh, you know, early or proto-modern humans, they were not Denisovans, they were not Neanderthals, they would seem to be proto-forms of ourselves, were not only the most sophisticated people on the planet that we know of so far from that, that age, but they also invented shamanism. Mm -hmm. So they were using, it would seem, the, uh, the cloak, cloaks or feathers to do with uh, swans, which is obviously a, a, a bird which I've done an awful lot of, of work on with the Cygnus Mystery and Cygnus Key. Um, and they were clearly using these to enter into altered states of consciousness um, and to journey into otherworldly environments, taking the form of a swan or being accompanied by a swan acting as some kind of guide into the, the, the other world. Um, and there has to be a connection between this invention of shamanism, the communications that would have taken place between these shamans and these otherworldly beings that they encounter, and the fact that suddenly this same community developed some of the most extraordinary inventions for hundreds of thousands of years. And that's something which is the premise of, of, of the new book, uh, which will, you know, take it from that point through to the Denisovans, through to Gebekli Tepe, but also try and understand what the intelligences are behind this. And we not only looking at, you know, the, the ideas of, of this being something that comes in mentally or through altered states of consciousness, but also the fact that you may be dealing with um, parallel dimensions, um, entities that exist normally in a multi-dimensional multi environment. We call them N-beings, N-dimensional beings. Um, but also looking, I mean, and this is why Greg's involved with the book, because he is one of North America's top experts on mound building cultures and their cosmology, uh, and looking at the absolute ultimate beliefs of Native American peoples. What did the Native American peoples truly believe? And it actually is incredibly uh, consistent uh, from let's say Canada all the way down to 
California and beyond. I mean, it's extraordinary and it gives a very good insight into what we should be looking for as answers on the Eurasian continent. Uh, you know, places like the Bekli Tepe, places like Israel and the Levant, uh, and of course, obviously the Denisovans. And the Denisovans come into this because there is tentative evidence to suggest that the Denisovans, when they originally came out of Africa, probably around 400, 450,000 years ago, encountered the Kezem people, probably mated with them, um, and that a hybrid of both the Denisovans and these uh, people continued on the journey into the likes of Siberia, Tibet, uh, Mongolia. So in other words, the Denisovans, yeah, even by the time that they the, reached there, before the, the hybrids in themselves. Right there before the Ice Age then. Oh God, yeah, this, this is, as I said, we're talking Long here before now, the 400, yeah. 400,000 years ago. I mean, that, that's how far away. And of course, that makes the Bekli Tepe look like yesterday. Now, yes, yes. Yeah, you know, know, so you can begin to understand that by the time we get to, the, to Gebekli Tepe, the, the sophistication, the innovations of humanity has been going for nearly 400,000 years. I mean, yeah, there's yeah, plenty yeah. of time to develop these. You don't need aliens. You don't need Atlantis. You don't need them. No, I, I understand what you're saying. And it's really fascinating. And these time boundaries, they're being pushed all the time, because, I mean, I was taught that humankind, Homo sapiens walked out of Africa in like 70,000 years ago, and then it's been pushed back until 200,000 years ago, 300,000. You're talking about 450,000 years ago. Yeah. But you do, you do think that Africa was the cradle still? Or? I do, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, obviously, some of my colleagues, anthropologists, obviously believe that there was a, a genesis of anatomical modern humans in uh, Eastern Asia. Uh, and that may be correct. I don't know. I mean, that may be correct, but certainly the main push, I think, did begin in Africa, uh, and I tried to explain. I mean, I take the story back from the Levant, from modern-day Israel, going back into um, Africa, uh, and try to look at, well, if we've got these answers for the Levant, if we've got these answers for the Denisovans in Siberia, can we take it back still further? Can we take it back to the origins of, 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 of the, the homo species? Mm. And that's something which I look at tentatively in the new book, but it's something that I want to explore more closely in the future. You know, when the world opens up again, you know, mm. I need to get to Africa um, and do some studies there, which will give me not just answers. I've got the answers. The answers are not the problem, but to back up everything with the exact evidence that we need to be able to take this even onto the next stage. Yeah. One of the most fascinating things about your research is that you, you take myths, legends, and ancient texts seriously. You make a practical interpretation of what's written there these yeah. stories yeah and you assume that they tell something that has actually happened maybe they tell the uh, the ones that you're referring to in in uh, the book about Gobekli Tepe maybe they are actually talking about something that 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 took place 200 300,000 years before what you are assuming in the book maybe yeah. they are talking about something entirely yeah. older much older things yeah. 
but the, the, that I mean, almost certainly the answer is yes. The problem is, is that you, you, you can't see things in terms of a linear timeline that goes back, let's say, from Quebec de Tepe to the Levant 400,000 years ago. You, you can't see that. You can't see a long line of activity from, let's say, Quebec de Tepe. It's just like a blur of activity that has no timing connected with it. Mm-hmm. In other words, it becomes almost impossible to define exactly when, what part of a legend developed for the first time. You know, you have to see it as one complete package and try and interpret it. Um, But you're right. I mean, some elements of those legends could go back, you know. Yeah, yeah, but but the elements about the capitalists, of of course, should uh, refer to that uh, probable comet. uh, Yeah, but I mean, obviously, the comet has a specific date, and that date is 10,800 B.C., and the knock-on effects of it lasted for hundreds of years, plus a mini ice age that lasted 1,200 years. So, mm. you know, it wasn't just something that happened all in one day. But that's just one. I mean, you know, there almost certainly were other cataclysms yeah. that occurred possibly around 30,000, 40,000 years ago, possibly much earlier. I mean, I don't want to speculate on specific dates because I've not gone into them in huge detail. Um, but clearly this wouldn't have been something on its own. I mean, there, there would have been other cataclysms, not necessarily uh, to do with a comet. I mean, maybe to do with supernovas, obviously, um, you know, stratovolcanoes going up. You know, obviously you've got the Toba mm. uh, event, which, uh, you, you know, which took place in, where was Toba? I can't remember now. Uh, in Eastern Asia, was it? Um, that affects large parts of, of Central and, and Eastern Asia about, what, 70,000 years ago, I think, mm. um, the Tober event, uh, and possibly created a bottleneck in human advancement uh, where we went down to just a few thousand people. I mean, that's what some of the theories suggest. Yeah. Uh, and that wasn't a cosmic event. That was simply a volcano blowing up, basically. So there's, got to, be, there's got to be a no. number of these cataclysms. And, I mean, going back to what Plato says just before he really introduces the whole story of Atlantis, which, by the way, I don't dismiss. I mean, I've written a whole book called Gateway to Atlantis that that looks at every single one of the theories and eventually pins down the the, the most probable location as the area of the Caribbean and the Bahamas, um, Mm. obviously in the Western uh, Atlantic Basin. That's also where Graham Hancock have been diving to look for. Yes, 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 he has. Yeah, I mean... You know, but obviously Graham uh, has, you know, a number of different views about Atlantis. I mean, you know, in, in his books, he, he has tended to place it in, in, in different locations. Uh, and he, but, it, but mo- most importantly is that he has div- divin, dress, right, dove or dived <laughs> onto these yeah. sites yeah. Uh, all around the world. You know, he did a book called Underworld, um, yeah. which, you know, looked at all these, 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 uh, remains underwater everywhere and I think that that's really important to say that look it's not just Atlantis we're not just dealing with one location somewhere uh, there is evidence of lost civilizations off the coasts of many different continents um, and that we need to factor that into our understanding of the origins of civilization yeah 
I guess anything is possible. Why are we told in school that all these myths and legends and descriptions of mystical events are just fantasies? Because history books are supposed to be like the be-all or end-all of what happened in the past. But as we know, most history books are only written by the victors um, and do not necessarily give us a good assessment of what happened in the past. Um, but the thing about myths and legends is that they're colloquial. They are carried forward by individuals that will have retained that knowledge across countless generations. I mean, I still find it beneficial today to go to a location, whether it be in Turkey, in Egypt or Indonesia, I was doing it recently, and just say to the village elders, what do you know about this place? What was handed down to you about what was going on? And often they will tell you the most incredible things. And you think, mm. why isn't this in any books? Yeah, and yeah. the academic will come along and say, oh, this is just, just you know, Fairy local tale. rubbish that, that's been made up to account for why that it's there. Some of it may be, but within it are cores of information that actually make a lot of sense if you check them out. To me, that's very, very important and, and is missed by the academics and scholars who will ignore these local people, will ignore the indigenous peoples and just excavate a site, come up to their own conclusions and disappear, and that's the end of it. They won't, they won't even interact with the locals. And that, that I think, is wrong. It's unscientific, actually. Well, they would say the opposite, it, that it's unscientific to listen to folklore and legends. But I think that that's silly. And I'll give it's you silly. one example. And I've got the full facts here, but this, just take my word for this. There is a crater in Australia uh, that was unquestionably the result of a cosmic event. Um, you know, let's say a, a, an asteroid or uh, comet fragment. And I think it dates about 15,000 years ago and when the local original peoples were asked about this originally they said fire came out of the sky and hit the ground and created that now this event took place let's say 15,000 years ago to me that is a local memory of an event that's been carried forward and I mean clearly they didn't just say it that easy I mean they had a whole story surrounding you know who did it and why but the core of that information has been preserved across 15,000 years. Yeah. Uh, and similar cores of information can be found in folklore, myths and legends all the way around the world. And as you say, I've used it in various of my books and I'm, I'm proud of it. I'm happy to do that. I think that it's very important to listen to what local people have got to say about the sites. If we didn't do that, for instance, Heinrich Schliemann would never have found Troy in southwest Turkey. Okay, yeah. Yeah, there are so many things to talk about, but time flies. And uh, just finally, I want to ask you, because your book doesn't mention the book that I read, one of the 15 books that you've written, doesn't mention Egypt very much. Uh, and no. You have written books about Egypt. Oh, yes. And, and it doesn't even appear in the timeline uh, that you um, provide 
the end of the book as far no, as no 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 i mean i think so i was a bit i was a bit uh you know um intrigued there why 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 is that is it i mean gebekli tepe is just such a big subject that it needed a book on its own uh and if you started to uh factor in it egypt as well um it would have just it would just been too much i mean so all of that is left to the book that follows that which is called the cygnus key i have to get this right now there's a reason for this the fact that there's two cygnus books uh, and that is quite simply is the fact that i did a first cygnus mystery book um it's out of print the publishers will not give me the rights back so i, I, I thought well hell to them i'll just write the book again <laughs> under a slightly different name so i called it the cygnus key but actually the cygnus key turned out to be a completely different book, which is almost got nothing to do with the first one. But it does uh, involve, you know, obviously the Cygnus constellation. It does involve Gebekli Tepe. And what it does show, and this is very, very important, I think, and answers your query here, is that it shows that the people of Gebekli Tepe, at the end of their time there, moved southwards, I mean, uh, you know, as well as anywhere else, and ended up in Egypt at a place called Helwan, um, and that this became their base for thousands of years until eventually that culture created the Pyramid Age. So in other mm -hmm. words, the cosmology, the technology, the art that eventually goes into the creation of the Great Pyramid came originally from Gebekli Tepe. And before mm -hmm. that, almost certainly as far east as Siberia. Yeah. So you don't adhere to the, theor the theories that the pyramids or the Sphinx in particular were actually built a lot earlier than, than what um, is no, normally... No, not, certainly not the Great Pyramid and the pyramids. I mean, there, there is too much of a, of, of, of a continuity of construction from the earliest Mastaba tombs of, of Egypt mm. through to the creation of the Step Pyramid to finally creating the beautiful uh, perfect pyramids that we see, that, of, of which the pinnacle is the Great Pyramid itself. Um, but I do believe that the technology came from a much earlier age and was present in Egypt as early as 10,500 BC. Uh, the Sphinx is an, an interesting one. Um, I don't believe that any researcher, any writer has the exact information as to its age, not one. I, don't, I, I, I would challenge any that, that say that they do. All you can say is that I think that it is older than the, probably the Great Pyramid. And there's a reason for that, because my personal belief is that the second pyramid was started, not finished, started before the Great Pyramid. Now, I, I, I give reasoning for this, good reasoning for this in the book, Cygnus Key. Um, but how old, we don't know. It could just be a couple of hundred years old. Um, it may be older, who knows? I mean, it may be a product. But what I can say is that as a natural feature, a simulacra, the, the Sphinx is many, many, many thousands of years older than the Pyramid Age and was revered by the, 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 the Neolithic peoples of the area from, you know, certainly 3,500 BC and arguably much earlier still. I have no problems with that. And that was the original Sphinx. But that was a natural monument that looked 
probably like a, a, a lion head with a, with a body. That would have been naturally there, sticking mm. out of the ground at Giza. Mm. And people would have revered that, just as they revere similar rock outcrops in many parts of the world. In Australia, for instance, the, the original peoples do. In Africa, many different tribal peoples venerate, um, you know, outstanding rock features, whatever. We know that. Um, and, I, and that's the original Sphinx. And I think that, that it was the Sphinx that drew people to that location and the fact that the area was the entrance into a cave system that subsequently became the entrance to what is known in Egyptian myth as the Duat, the underworld, a cave like underworld relating to the passage of the soul in death and the path of the sun from night, sorry, from, from sunset through the night to its rising again on the eastern horizon at dawn. Um, and that these, these were going on at Giza, yeah, for, for, for many thousands of years before the Great Pyramid was constructed. So in other words, I don't think that everything just suddenly arose around 2500 BC on the Giza Plateau. But I do believe that it was something that began very humbly at a much earlier age and then gradually grew into what we see today on the Giza Plateau. How they built it is a, still an enigma in my view. but, but Yeah, I've, I've, I've tried to tackle that in one of my books <laughs> called Gods of Eden. And I, I, I'll be honest, I only put it in there because the publishers asked for it. They said, yeah, yeah. oh, could you make sure that you that you have a whole section on how they actually built the Great yeah. Pyramid? <laughs> well, uh, it's not really my area. So, well, yeah, put it in there anyway. And so it's in there. It's in my book, Gods of Eden. So Why not go esoteric and talk about sound frequencies and things like well, that? Well, that's exactly <laughs> what I talk about in there. I mean, I okay. go okay. into yeah. detail in Gods of Eden about all of the different traditions around the world of sound technology and the mm. idea of using some kind of musical tones mm. to lift blocks. You can find it in Egypt. You can find it in the, the Levant. You find it in Mexico. Um, it, where else is it? Tibet. Is there in Tibet? Various cases. Uh, there's something in sound technology. I, I do honestly believe that. But unfortunately, it is definitely a lost technology, I'm afraid. And uh, I think that we're beginning to understand it again. But at the moment, we can only raise something about the size of a P into the air. But I'm sure that P will get larger in the future. <laughs> we should say in this context that that an entire cave system beneath the, uh, the Giza Plateau has its name from you. It's called, yeah. a, that's the system that you were referring to, that's the cave right. system. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Collins Caves. Yeah, Collins Caves, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, this <laughs> is named by Zoe Hawass. Um, you discovered those? Yes, yeah. Well, but I think the word discovered is inappropriate. Rediscovered is-, is Rediscovered, of course, the yeah. correct term. And this was myself and a colleague, an Egyptological researcher by the name of Nigel Skinner-Simpson, uh, and this was the end product of a five-year study into looking for the entrance of a lost cave system uh, at Giza. Um, and it really is an Indiana Jones uh, adventure. Yeah, uh, it sounds it's like It's written it. up in my book, uh, Gateway to Atlantis. No, no, sorry, wrong book. Uh, Beneath the Pyramids. Beneath the Pyramids. You can't get it. It's out of print, but it will be republished one day. 
Um, and yeah, I mean, it caused an international incident almost. Um, when the authorities finally found out what had been going on um, and the fact that I'd written a book about it, <laughs> uh, I, I became uh, a persona non grata in Egypt and could have been oh, arrested. Really? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was all over the Arabian press uh, mm. um, at the time. And it was. And when was this? Out. In the 90s or in the 2000s? Well, it, the, the, the case was discovered in 2008. Uh, the book came out in 2009. And I mean, but luckily we did, we did everything right. As soon as we found them, we went to the director of excavations on the plateau at Giza and told him specifically what we discovered and asked him to help us to, to, to you know, to go back and to see what else we could find. And initially he was interested. Then we, he just disappeared into the night. Um at the right time, we, we also went to um, Zahi Hawass, who was at the time the director of the Supreme Council of Antiquities, um, and presented all of our evidence to him, including a paper which re remains unpublished to this day. Um, so we did all the right things. And that saved me from getting arrested and putting in prison if ever I, I stepped foot in Egypt again. Mm -hmm. um, and the person that smoothed out all of that for me was Robert Bouval the author of the, um, the Orion Mystery, who's a very good friend of mine. And, um, yeah, he, made, he knew the right people, so he was able to smooth it out. But that didn't stop me getting banned from Turkey, um, which happened uh, a year or so ago. The book that we, we started talking about at the beginning of this um, interview called From the Ashes of Angels um, was published in Turkey 2002, the unfortunate thing is, is that obviously I was a lot younger when I wrote that book. So I was a lot more rebellious. And uh, not only did I talk about Kurdistan uh, and the, the history, the culture uh, of, of the Kurdish people in there, but I dedicated the book to them. Uh, which was arguably a great mistake uh, as I look back yes. in retrospect, even though it was a very honourable and noble thing and the right thing. It was, thing but it was done. probably a crime in Turkey doing that. Well, if, well, I mean, the trouble is that it's now meant that uh, there's a good chance I'll be arrested if I go back to uh, Turkey. Um, the book is now banned. Every copy was destroyed uh, in Turkey and it's no longer available there. Um, and I'm also banned from Gebekli Tepe. Oh, that's terrible. Um, because of the book, Gebekli Tepe, Genesis of the Gods, being a bestseller in Turkey. Uh, what? It, you're yeah. banned because it's a bestseller or you're banned because... You, I mean, well, you no, don't mention very much about the Kurds. It upset the archaeologists who oh. refer to my work as lies and pseudoscience. And um, I was the last time I was there with, with a group of people, uh, which was in 2000 and... 18, I'm going to say now, maybe 19, um, uh, we were essentially thrown out of Quebec and mm. uh, for no reason whatsoever. Um, and if we'd, have, if we'd have protested, I would have been arrested and thrown into jail. Um, yeah, the, the military police were ready, ready mm. for, for, for anything to kick off. Um, wow. And I mean, I had no advanced knowledge of this at all. I'd even told the, um, the the guy in charge of the place, Dr. Lee Clare, that I was on the way. So I had no understanding of what was about to hit me. Um, and, you know, we were screamed at. 
by Dr. Lee Clare. Uh, we don't want your lies and pseudoscience here. So that's what we're talking about in this interview now. It's all lies and pseudoscience. Okay. Is, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. is that what you think? Is that what the viewers think? Maybe, maybe not. I don't think so. I mean, some some of the viewers will, of course, think that, but it doesn't matter because it's a free country, and and nobody knows anyway what happened to what happened. Well, I mean, fifteen thousand, twenty thousand, hundred thousand years ago, and uh, yeah. I mean, your theories I, are better than mo than many, but uh, I mean, they're at least as good as as any. So, I mean, who can who can say that you're wrong? Well, I mean, look. What I say is not lies, and it and if if it's taken as pseudoscience, then that's fine. I don't care really. Um, but I mean, I just think it's a shame that scholars and academics act this way, um, that they feel so challenged by books that are simply pot boilers, if you like. I mean, as far as what they would see to do with a particular subject matter, um, that they should be so concerned that they should act this way. And I think that only makes them look bad, uh, yeah. not me. Um, I think secretly I mean, many, look, many are happy that you mavericks do these things because it's like you're, you're testing theories that they would never dare to test in yeah. open. Well, well here, in well, one thing is that the following day after all this took place at Gebekli Tepe, I mean, some of our group went back to Gebekli Tepe. I said, look, you go, I, if I go, a riot is going to occur. I said, so you, you go. So they went there and one of them was just taking some photographs and a woman came up to him, German woman, who was an archaeologist. And she said, are, are you with Andrew Collins's, you know, tour group? And he sort of reluctantly thought, oh my God, what do I say? And he said, yes, yes, I am. Yeah, okay, I am. And she said, well, I just want you to know that not all archaeologists think the way that Dr. Lee Clare thinks that there are many people here that have read Andrew Collins's book, you know, Quebec wow. Genesis of Gods, and feel that he's got some very valid points um, and that, you know, anybody is essentially free to come up with their views to do with the site. We don't agree with all of it necessarily, but some good valid points in there. And that was great to hear that, that, yes. yeah, this is not some kind of carte blanche belief of everybody who works at Quebec Tepe. Uh, the others, you know, clearly have differing views. So that, that meant a lot to me. Yeah, that's exactly how it should be. Andrew Collins, a warm thanks for being a guest on the show. And this has been a fascinating and wonderful co conversation and an education and good luck with your continued work, whether it be in Gubekli Tepe or not, uh, but all these projects that you have you. ahead of you. I mean, the only thing obviously I want to add uh, is if people are interested in my work and want to communicate, uh, go on to my website, which is andrewcollins.com. Uh, you can email me via that. Or obviously, I'm on social media, Instagram, uh, Twitter, and uh, Facebook. Uh, and what else? Yeah, we do tours to Egypt and Turkey, but clearly I can't go on the, the Turkey one for obvious reasons, uh, although we're trying to sort out that problem, by the way. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I've got a new book coming out with Greg Little uh, next uh, March. But my latest book, most recent one, which came out in 2018 was, sorry, 2019, was Denisovan Origins, co-authored with uh, Dr. Greg Little. Uh, and that goes into everything that we've talked about, really, I think, you know, including Gebekli Tepe. 
Um, and yeah, we just continue to try and solve the mysteries of the universe. So thank you very much. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you, Andrew, once again. Thank you.